Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Edward Carlson. He is a New York shipping lawyer by trade. Prior to studying law, he edited gun magazines, covered sports, religion, and music for Philadelphia newspapers, and served as a liaison between city government agencies and immigrant communities in Philadelphia. His first novel is All the Beautiful People We Once Knew. It's a great book, and he's a great conversationalist. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Edward Carlson. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your debut novel, All the Beautiful People We Once Knew. Now, uh, I'm going to, you know, this is something about this novel that I, I mean this with a sincere, in the sincerest form of flattery. I feel like you write with incredible depth about characters that are a little superficial and somehow, <laughs> but you, but you write with a depth about their superficiality. Is that, mm. is that, like a fair assessment you think of the of of the characters in the book i I think probably the superficiality then drives the story but i think maybe i was trying to have some empathy with their superficiality or i that might be a result of the fact that i was constantly rewriting the book over and over again in order to try to get some depth to these otherwise superficial characters i didn't want them to be cliched um but i think i also had some empathy for them as well if that makes sense yeah no yeah and that's what i mean i mean it's it's you like, there's a shallowness to, to a superficiality to their to the main character's kind of existence that it's almost like it's the, it's the lives of almost like not so quiet desperation <laughs> and i think right. of like the beginning of like fight club when ed yeah. norton is just cataloging this existence that's unfulfilling and yet cataloging and analyze it, analyze it with incredible depth and i feel like you capture that the malaise of what probably a lot of people in late modern blue state metro life feel <laughs> well it's like you you can always i was very concerned about the book being autobiographical and and basing any one character on any one individual that was in my life especially when i was working at the law firm but you get these kind of kaleidoscopes of characters and you pick little pieces out from your daily life that you build the story around. And I think for me, writing this book was all about the notes. I had always been a note taker. I had always been someone who would write notes walking down the street. And I think as I've gotten older, those notes were born of a certain empathy for what I saw around me. And so a lot of the novel was constructed out of notes that I started taking again after I had stopped writing for a long time. So I went to law school. I went to Temple at night. I'm like, all right, I'm done with writing. I had written two books. I had written one book before then and tried to write another book. That was not going anywhere. So I went to law school at night and I started writing. I stopped writing and then I moved to New York and the desire to write or the need to write something down was triggered. It was almost always triggered by empathy for something that I saw or something that I heard. And so the novel was kind of this quilted patchwork of just thousands of notes that were constructed and built upon over and over again after kind of returning to writing after a long hiatus. And I think the fact that I had gone to law school and sat for the bar exam and been working as a lawyer in New York gave me enough discipline to take these notes, right? I mean, I always have a notebook like this. I mean, I threw out all of them before I went to law school, but I always have things like this. And it, the notes are almost always triggered by something that you see or something that I would see walking down the street or something that would would catch my attention. I felt the need to write it down. And I, I think that there was a kernel of empathy in 
in that process, probably because I was raised as this Irish Catholic in Philadelphia, and we had to say prayers for everybody all the time, anybody that we <laughs> saw. I mean, I had a list of people that I had to pray for every night that would drag on for hours because I'd be like, okay, remember the homeless man that we saw on the street? All right, remember the woman that we saw on TV that needed a liver transplant? And I'd had this long laundry list of people that I had to, that in my mind I would pray for. And I think my observations were always kind of grounded in this empathy. So fast forward 20 something years and I'm working in a law firm in New York and I'm surrounded by this whole other cast of characters. And, you know, there could be people who in some ways of their life would be not, I don't want to say detestable, but for kind of Metro North blue state liberal, you're kind of horrified by, you're horrified by their political positions. You're horrified by the shit that comes out of their mouth. Yet at the same time, at the end of the day, they're the best person in the world to have, you know, two makers marks within a cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, and they, could, yeah, and they give it, and they give a shit because you know you, you they might be the same person who's going to drive somebody into the ground in litigation, and you think that maybe their some of their tactics or their viewpoints are diametrically opposed to yours, or a little bit morally reprehensible even. But at the same time, at the end of the day, their company is you know they got some charisma and they have their own shit they're going through as well. You know, it, it almost seems like New York is a character in the novel, and I, I think about you know. Uh, our main character, Stephen Harker, who the beginning of the book, as I mean, I felt like, by the way, at the beginning, I felt like this is like um, the Lex kind of douchebaggery, like all these uh. like, douchebaggy kind of cliches that his mm-hmm. his one of the, his partner, one of the partners and friends at the law firm is like saying, and you narrate that so well. But is it? I mean, it, it it's is this like a reality that you see all the time in New York, where you have like this kind of uh, kind of trendy liberals rubbing shoulders with the financial class and and, and the and lawyers and stuff like this that where there's this strange kind of well there's always these unwritten things in the office right there's always people in the i mean every office is a microcast the greater new york area you know you have your long island republicans you have your north jersey republicans you have your fiscally conservative republicans but who are socially liberal you have your trump supporters and then you have the same girls in the office who don't eat gluten Everything has to be organic. They basically regurgitate Bernie Sanders talking points or Hillary Clinton talking points. And the, the, every every office is a microcosm of what's happening in the country. And you have to kind of tread this. You, you have to navigate this narrow line between. Um, it's almost like there's this unwritten rules. Right. And the moment that somebody sits at the lunch table or sits around in a meeting and decides to pontificate about Trump or politics or whatever, Everyone gets tense because you're talking about something that is just beneath the surface, but you also have to function in an office environment. You know, you're all spending a lot of time with each other all week long and you can't get into it because you know that the woman around the corner voted for Trump and you want to march into her office and complain to her about what, you know, the revolution, the revelations about Don Jr. And I so these New York offices, you know, there's these unwritten rules, and it is, it's common. You're going to have the girl with, you know, the sleeve tattoos who lives in Williamsburg working next door to the guy that has the McMansion on Long Island. And they have to function together in an office. And then you take all that and then you stick it in New York City where there's a massive amount, there's wealth and there's poverty and there's a lot of drinking. I mean, New York is a drinking, Philly is too, but everyone in New York's always going out drinking. They're drinking with their colleagues, they're drinking with clients. And sometimes you, if you decide in that environment to take a political stand or or to make a stand about things it puts you in a it's not always the most comfortable situation for everybody yeah you you also narrate pretty well like the there seems to be a constant undertone of self-medication 
Not yeah, just well, that's common. I mean, everybody I know in New York City has got like, you know, a stack of Xanax, Percocet, you know, not Percocet, but Xanax and Lorazepam and pills to help them sleep. And they go out and have drinks all the time. And half the city smells like marijuana when you're walking through this down the streets. I mean, there's a lot of self-medication <laughs> in New York. Can I, can I ask, you're, you've, you were a journalist before you went to law school and became an attorney. Is that a different kind of office culture? I mean, it, it, like as a journalist than it is working in a sort of metro New York law firm? Well, I never had really the joy of being a full-time staff writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And that was my big goal after college. So I would go back and I would cover high school football and I'd cover religion. And that was the same time that the buyouts were happening. So I'm like riding my bicycle to the Inquirer to get the story in on time, trying to get a password to get onto the computer system to write the article. And everyone's like, who are you? You know, and that they're like, who is this guy who's knocking on the door? Because I didn't have the passcode to get into the building in order to sit at the machine to type the story into the editorial system. So those guys were all taking buyouts. So at the Philadelphia Inquirer at that time, it was I, I don't I mean, I, I picked up on little pieces of it, but there was a culture there that I was never really a part of because I was a stringer. But then at the Philadelphia Weekly, there was a culture where there were the people, you know, that was back in the day when the alt weekly was still like a. A big thing. You went down, you got your copy of the Philadelphia City Paper, the Philadelphia Weekly, to find out where Fugazi was playing, you know, or find out. Yeah, no one had smartphones. So, like, you're no standing around waiting for a train or whatever. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, and you, you read the newspaper and you made a plan with your friends when you saw them at the bar and you say, hey, this band is playing at, you know, J.C. Dobbs. Let's go see. Well, that. So that, that that newspaper had its whole other culture. I think what what's different about the New York office culture, especially with a law firm or now I work in-house with a shipping insurance company, but you know, there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of client service. And I was reading some of the stuff that you had on your website and also to try to bring it back to the book a little bit. There's not a lot of compassion in a New York City office environment. Hmm. There's just not there's there's not a lot of empathy and there's not a lot of compassion because the clients that are paying the bills to keep the lights on. Compassion is not they don't want compassion and compassion in some ways can be a liability. I mean, you're essentially in a money making machine. The city is an entity of, it's a it's a service. Everyone's providing a service. It's providing a service, whether it's legal, financial, insurance. So these offices, there's not a lot of room for compassion. Compassion costs money in a way. You know, your goal is to save the client money or make the client money. You should still be ethical about it. There are still ethical rules, but whether or not you have compassion for someone like say Thomas in the book, who is out in the you know in rural Pennsylvania popping painkillers and shooting deer. Compassion in that environment when you're representing the insurance company is actually could be perceived almost as a liability. Yeah. And you do a pretty good job. I think, you know, what's interesting, I feel like this is a lot, a lot, maybe since the Sopranos, like with serial dramas and stuff, we're less interested in good guys and bad guys. And we're, we're more interested, I feel like in honesty and authenticity. And so the, the way right. we gravitate to a character is how honest or authentic we find them, like, you know, like breaking bad, you know, a lot of yeah. people like you look at like Walt's brother-in-law you don't like him in the beginning and you kind of like him more at the end he's the same he's he's got the same job he's a law enforcement officer but by the end he seems in touch with himself you do a good job at at, at sort of realistically narrating the stories people tell themselves like about you know there's moving speech in the beginning about why they won't just pay it out <laughs> and you're like right. there's no compassion and yet it is you are you are thinking well there are people that scam systems and, and that is a reality. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you weigh all that and stay sane? You know? 
Well, and I think that that's, you know, and I, I would talk about this a lot with the editor back in the day is that, um, you know, all, all of these characters have to function in this world. I was very focused on trying not to make them cliches of themselves. You know, it's, I think it's easy to write about we're, right now. We're so inundated with kind of preconceived notions of who everybody is and how they're supposed to think and what they're supposed to do. But the reality is more nuanced than that. So I'm actually somewhat encouraged by the fact that you found those that to be a more nuanced presentation, if that makes sense. You know, I, I was very wary of making people caricatures of themselves. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that Stephen, you know, he's he's in, he's a, a thinker who doesn't get to exercise his intellect. And so sometimes it almost seems like he gets caught, like with the case with Thomas, it almost becomes like an intellectual exercise, like to keep himself engaged. You well, know? Right. And this is, this is the case that he'll actually sink his teeth into. But this was another thing also when you're working as a kind of service provider in New York, is that if you step back from what you're looking at, you're actually seeing the you know, basically the issues and the disputes of our times playing out on the paperwork in front of you. You know, so when you're processing insurance claims from guys returning home from Afghanistan and you're having a meeting with the client or you're talking with the partner about it, you're running through the factual analysis of the case. You're running through how to dispute the case. You're running through how to disp- you know, challenge various aspects of the case. But if you step back, you're like, holy shit. I mean, this this stems from an IED attack in Iraq. This stems from you know, the, this this claim arises from the fact that, you know, an Afghan soldier was a Taliban sympathizer and decided to open up fire on a room full of American contractors. This is the stuff that was in the newspaper. This is the stuff that was driving this, whatever it is that we're in right now, whatever situation it is that we're in right now, I think it's this collective PTSD that the country's suffering. But you were seeing that play out in real time on otherwise very sterile, you know, work product documents. Here's a claim submission. Here's my claim submission. Here's my form. You know, the guy sits down and writes out, you know, I was driving, you know, I was traveling from A to B in Afghanistan and there was a mortar attack and there was gunfire and now I have PTSD. Well, no, people would have very little interest in the fact that there was that this was resulting from a geopolitical struggle or that this was arising from some of the, you know, the most pressing issues of the time, essentially this endless war on terror and the United States' campaigns overseas. So all these claims and this work and this legal work and these financial obligations are bubbling up from things that are actually happening overseas that we're reading about in the newspapers. But when you're dealing with some of these issues in an office uh, in this type of environment, you're not supposed to be paying you're not supposed to be paying attention or you're supposed to kind of sweep aside the fact that this is relevant. This is this is interesting. This is historical. This is a documentation. This is we're documenting here what our decision to go to war in Afghanistan is actually how it's playing out in real time when these guys would come home from war. So, you know, there was, remember back in the day, Rumsfeld wanted to subcontract the entire army. He's like, why do I have to have 5,000 soldiers go over and cook food and fix cars? I can subcontract it out to this company. And you had some guy in rural North Carolina that's like, fuck it, I can make $70 an hour or $60 an hour changing tires in Afghanistan and get a big fat bonus at the end of my contract. Yeah, and if you're Dick Cheney, you can make sure Halliburton gets some of the contracts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, and, well, and you can make sure they get some of the contracts and you can make sure their cronies and their buddies are getting the contracts, which is going to go back to the bottom line. So they're subcontracting out all this work that otherwise the army would do. And people were jumping on the bandwagon. Or like, you know, forget it. I, honey, I'm going to Afghanistan for six months. Make sure the kids get to school. I'll check in with you every other day on Skype. Meanwhile, I'll be living in the green zone in Kabul. 
Yeah, it's funny because you name the insurance company World Score, and the law firm is Kilgore. <laughs> but, but I was just thinking as I was reading, like how much, as you were saying that, like how much also are the casualties of war covered up by the fact that we use private contractors because you don't have to have the bodies go over to Wilmington, Delaware, and the ceremony yeah, exactly. thing, like these things. And so instead of like our shared responsibility through you know the shared role of magistrate and democracy we just push it off on a corporation <laughs> yeah we push it off on a corporation but remember how traumatic it was when the first americans that were killed in in iraq were these dine corps they i think they worked for dine corps they were private contractors that got strung up they got killed hung and strung up and were their bodies were dangling and it, it took a little while to come back say these weren't soldiers these were private security providers you know and all of these geopolitical issues at the time of the war in Afghanistan and this dispute and the kind of rise of Obama, but there's still this ongoing war and the, the stain of the Bush years, we're all playing out in this legal work. And you have an insurance company that's collecting a lot of premium and making a lot of money by writing the workers' compensation policies. You have guys from rural, basically red state America, and I'm sorry to use that term, but it's the most accurate. You know, you have guys from you know more rural parts of the country going overseas to fight you know, even if they were a private contractor, a lot of times they still wanted to have a firearm in order to defend themselves. They all know how to shoot a gun. They were either ex-cops or at one point had been in the military. And, um, you know, these these plate tectonic shifts within the country were playing out in insurance claims. And yet the law firm is kind of oblivious to it. They're like, oh, well, this is great. We got another 25 cases from the insurance company. This is great. This is going to keep the lights on and this will keep the lights on in the office for X number of months. This will pay the bonuses to the partners. Yet, if you have any kind of curiosity about the world and you're engaged in political affair and in current events, you're reading this and you're like, wow, this is like, a, you know, the incident report here could have been in the, something that was reported in the paper. Do you think Stephen Harker would give a shit about this conversation? Uh, I think Stephen Harker would be jealous of the fact that somebody sat down and wrote a book about it and he hadn't. Hmm. I think. I think Stephen Harker... Um, I think Stephen Harker, like a lot of us who have their kind of liberal arts education and try to be engaged in the world, end up having to, you know, in order to keep the bill, you know, in order to pay the New York City rent and keep the lights on and take care of their responsibilities, have to put a part of themselves in a box and put it on the shelf and leave it there. And his, and, uh, and his failed marriage, too. Like, it's interesting because the way you narrate that, how, okay. We scored. We're dinks now. Double income, no kid. But then we kind of right. and then and you you go. It's funny because I was I was reading something recently that said that these therapists picked. They did extensive interviews with like seventy five or a hundred couple or, or seventy five couples or something, and they picked with one hundred percent those that would get divorced. Like they interviewed over X number of years. And they right. said what it was was when the narrative switched to contempt, like anger, anything you can get over that stuff. Like you could have awful fights, you can you can right. even have periods of resentment and frustration. But once the contempt language sets in, like I never, knew, I thought he was smart back then. Like, and you you right. narrate right. in like one page the dissolution of a relationship, the dissolution of a marriage, in like two pages where it's all these kind of like yeah, these it's they're all they're all incomplete sentences, right? I mean they're just like. Description period, description period, description period. But that goes a little bit more back to, I think, to the process of writing a book and how much how much risk you're willing to take. And I mean, I'm, I'm be honest with you. I mean, it's not like I hadn't gone through those things in my personal life. I was able to relate to those incidents because I had been in that situation. Um, and what you're trying to do is kind of squeeze the juice out of whatever it was that situation was and, you know, 
it's kind of like a purging in a way. It's kind of an also an exploitation of what the situation was. But I think when you write a book, you got to take risks, you know, and that was that that description right there at the end of the book came in much later. That was probably in one of the last drafts. I mean, this book went through 100,000 drafts before it reached to this point. And that description there of the failure of the marriage came in probably, you know, deep in the ninth inning. Um, but I had a great editor, you know, this guy, Maxim Brown. He's like, run with this a little bit more. And then I did. And then it, I think fortunately it worked out. Um, but with respect to contempt, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 42. I'm divorced. I have a child with an ex-girlfriend who I'm still very close with. I have a lot of friends who are married now. I have a lot of friends who are married and divorced. I have friends who are on the cusp of divorce. I mean, I've watched relationships for a long time now, and I, I know which ones work and which ones don't work. And I think you're right about this idea of contempt. I mean, the, the couples that stay together are the ones that respect each other and still like to sit down and have a glass of wine with each other at the end of the day. But the couples that, you know, when they're maligning each other in front of their friends or talking shit about each other or putting each other down, you know that it's just not it's not sustainable. Something else has, has taken over the relationship. Are you a lonely person? Because you write about loneliness. Like there's a pervasive loneliness that covers this whole book. And right. it, it's described so well. <laughs> I'm thinking you've had to have some lonely patches. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of lonely patches. I'm a single dad. I spent a lot of time with my four and a half. My son's now four and a half. I spent a lot of time, but I have good friends, you know, so I'm not as lonely, but there was a period of time where, I think there's a period of time in New York where you have to come face to face with your loneliness because you'll have your job and you might have whoever you're dating or sleeping with at the time or maybe even whoever you're married to. But at some point there will be a shift and what your expectations are will not match what the reality is. And then you're it's just you in the city away. And if you have a proclivity, as I do, to go out and have a drink and talk to people and wander around the streets, I mean, New York can be kind of rich, rich fodder for that to 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 be alone. And, um, but I don't know if that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I think sometimes loneliness gets a bad rap. And I also think that loneliness can actually be a good thing because you're forced to deal with yourself at that moment and, and what you want to do and what your goals are and what your expectations are. So I actually, you know, I, I don't think loneliness is a bad thing. I think people should spend more time alone actually. Yeah. And I, I maybe there's a difference too, between like solitude and loneliness yeah, probably right. Because you could be lonely and never be alone in a room. And you can, you know... Well, solitude is always kind of romanticized as this Thoreau type, you know, you're on, you're on the pond. You know, you're, yeah. you're out there, you're getting in touch with yourself in your solitude. But loneliness, I, mean, I think that a lot of people in New York are lonely. I think a lot of people in cities are lonely. I think a lot of people, you know... Spend a lot, you know, a, a fair number of people, like working professionals in these large urban environments, spend time alone, and I think that's a natural state—not a natural state, but it's—it's it's just a reality. I, think. I wanted to take a quick break from my conversation with Edward Carlson, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors: Leia Paulos, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh. Redder, thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. And there you can find information about how to give. If you give just five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast. 
and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with Edward Carlson. It's interesting, too. I mean, there's a pervasive secularity to all the... With the exception of Kath, who becomes Stephen's love interest, who is his, you know, co-worker's ex-wife. They have this strange, weird relationship. Uh, I mean, there's this one scene in the book that's great where you describe, like, after they come back from her honeymoon, and right. there's a Bluetooth speaker on the table, and he's <laughs> taking a shower, and he's masturbating. To, right. to, and they can hear the porn because he's got to turn it up in the shower. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit awkward. And, and then she's like, "I never tell." She tells him for the first time when right. they run in front of her friends. Yeah. with Stephen there. Yeah, like I, it's just like so cruel and yet and cold, and she can't figure out why he's upset. But I mean, it, I, apart from Kath, who has a kind of, I, I would almost say, flaky spirituality, there's just a pervasive secularity in the book too. Like the, the, there. People are not part of synagogues or mosques or churches. Or there's one guy that kind of does some yoga, but who is one of right. Stephen's neighbors. Who's, right. But he's the guy in the backyard underneath the fig trees. Yeah, he's kind of annoying. Nice, yeah. but annoying. Yeah, he's yeah, he's the guy. He smells like sage all the time. Yeah, is that secularity? Like, I mean, you you talked about how you used to pray all the time, and now you take notes. I mean, do you see that secularity? that pervasively in New York as you write about it in the book or is it colors the book? I think it's almost weird in New York. If you meet somebody who says, um, well, I'll see you on Sunday after I go to church or yeah, this is my friend from church. And when someone where I live now, I live in Jersey city, uh, right across the river. And there are a number of people around and sometimes I'll see them out handing out little flyers, inviting people to their community church and it's kind of jarring when you see them as you're walking to the subway because you have your headphones in or you're reading the newspaper, or you're stomping off to work to get in the subway and spend 45 minutes underground. And then the guy that you know from around the corner is handing out little invitations and a, and a morning breakfast bar to try to entice you to come to their Sunday morning um, religious service. And it's, it's clearly the minority. And it's almost jarring. And sometimes I've almost felt like they were embarrassed to cross paths with me because there they are almost revealing their secret that they go to a church. Hmm. You know, it's not, I mean, I've, a couple of times I've been taken back, you know, of course I'll accept it and I'll say good morning. Nice to see you. And I'll take the fire and I'll take the breakfast bar, but he knows that I'm not going to his church. And he probably thinks that maybe I'm a little bit judgy about it, even though I'm not. Um, but that's, that's the minority. It's the minority now that people are going to church. I mean, there are a couple of people around here who I see on Sunday morning, putting their kids on the back of the bikes and going off to church, but it is primarily, I, I mean, I'm everyone in my community who I grew up with. We're all Catholics who want nothing to do with the church. And that's probably more the scandals of the church growing up. And we were boys in Philadelphia going to Catholic mass and we want nothing to do with it. And we certainly don't want our kids being anywhere near it. But with respect to this overall secularity, I mean, the churches in New York, church in New York on Sunday morning is brunch. You know, it's huevos rancheros and bottomless mimosas. That's church for a lot of people. Do you think that there's a vacuum that's created by the loss of some, I mean, there's, I just read some studies for white Americans, how, whether they go to church or synagogue has a significant influence on income and whether or not they think the country's kind of, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic about right. the direction of the country. So Pete, I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, that book that came out, Hillbilly Elegy, where the guy, oh, I can't think of his name, but he writes for right. several, but he's basically saying that like a lot of the kind of, red state trump voters actually they're not 
a lot of them weren't religious. I mean, they might check Christian or something, but they're actually, it's more of an ethnic thing. And there's a loss right. of these kinds of institutions right. that, are, that have some kind of redemptive influence on people. Like, you know, because they're, it's a community a little bigger than your family who gathers right. around at least some kind of idea or veneer of hope, you know? Right. Well, and also it's an, I think that it's a community, right? I mean, I think that's one of the things that people are missing out on a lot is this sense of community. What's interesting though, is that not to just bring it back to the book is that though, but Thomas is a member of his church, right? So he goes to this church, the woman who is processing the paperwork at the courthouse, she knows him from the church. Right. Um, he goes to church. He goes, plays bass guitar in the Baptist band. Um, but I don't know if he necessarily acts as like a, what we would consider to be a Christian in, in any type of capacity. There's nothing about him that seems to be essentially Jesus-like or that he's reading the, the Bible and trying to, I'm sorry, someone keeps calling me for work here. Um, sorry about that. So, you know, the, he, he is the Christian, but he acts the least Christian. I, I think that maybe we're at this point right now where empathy in the cities and, and something is replacing this this need to go to church. And I think we're in the throes of this transformation because people are not going to church and being with like-minded people and spending time in this certain type of community. Um, something is replacing it. And I think right now we're in this, in this zone where it's being replaced and it's not entirely certain what's going to replace it. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, like there is, yeah. I think, I mean, I think there is this, this kind of tyranny of the secular right now. I mean, it's, it's a lot about technology. It's a lot about being on your phone. It's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of narcissism. There's a lot of self-promotion. There's a lot of, there's an emphasis on making money. There's an emphasis on being liked, on being connected to people online. But that Judeo-Christian idea of going to a church and taking care of people and being thankful for what you have and respectful and whatever, I, I, that is, I think that's on the wane. I think that's waning. Uh, and something else is replacing it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If I was going to describe S Stephen's chief, like, salient like character trait is the best thing about his character i think the word that comes to mind is decency like yeah for all of his foibles he's trying which are many he's a decent human being i mean you know after his uh bosses or co-worker the police his kind of senior co-worker uh after Flieger? yeah after flieger blows up you know there's this great scene where after his ex-wife humiliates him they run it they run into each other you know this trend this trendy restaurant and Flieger goes and gets a hockey stick out of the trash can <laughs> and smashes the sign and, right. and Steven just stands there not knowing you and you know he sees the way the manager of the restaurant on the phone like with the cops and he's just like gives him a credit card and he, he pays like 1250 bucks for it to right, get he still has to negotiate with him about it yeah and, and he but he that strikes I mean you know that was a fundamentally decent act in the midst yeah. of awfulness and actually the book I don't want to, you know, do a spoiler here, but the book ends in a tone of radical decency. Right. Well, I think maybe the overarching theme is the is one of the things this book is just like this need for empathy. Right. There has to be some empathy, and this litigious world in which the characters exist, empathy is like we talked before with, about compassion is is a liability. Em empathy doesn't get the job done in how the job in this how the scope of the work is defined. And I think that it's important to have empathy. I think it's important to try to have empathy, with the, especially when you're living in a city, I guess, regardless of where you live, to try to have some empathy with the people around you and try to have some empathy for the work that you're being asked to do and try to have empathy for your adversary. 
try to have empathy for, you know, the Thomases of the world. And maybe people in the cities get so wrapped up with taking care of the day-to-day reality of paying bills and, and keeping their jobs and trying to advance that empathy, this lack of empathy becomes this kind of gnawing, kind of yawning chasm of emptiness in a lot of people. And Especially if you're raised in this tradition where you're supposed to have empathy. Yeah, and doesn't social media and things like that, like it actually cuts down, even in cities, you know, where at least you used to have to kind of get along with people that were different just because of density. But now with social media and algorithms that tell us, you know, you're going to love this show or this, or this right. news channel, like it, it almost it feels like everything about mass culture works against empathy. It, well, it, empathy is like a liability now. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's why people are so politically, why things seem so politically intractable these, these days? Because people well, just I, can't I, empathize with it. Well, that person, even though they have a different view of how to construct a healthcare bill, it's not like they want to kill me or take right. or, or take away all my choices. You know, like. Well, I mean, back in the day, I spent and I think I spent two years editing gun magazines in San Diego. So here I was a Philadelphia. By the way, liberal. that's fascinating. Like, and I was thinking about that when I first got your book and I was looking at your bio. I'm thinking, but I guess that's. What, I mean, it's south of Orange County, so I guess there's a lot. I mean, I, I think it's very Republican pocket out there. There's a, and it's that northern San Diego. I mean, that was like Pete Wilson territory. It's also like one of the best looking groups of people. Like I feel like I li- I feel like what you are in Philadelphia is like what you are. If you're seven in Philly, you're seven. I feel right. like, I feel like I lived in uh, New York for or Pittsburgh for a little while. I was like a Pittsburgh ten. Nobody works out. Right. I, when, I, when I was like, it's weird San, when you meet like a really sexy Republican. It's like you don't know what to do. When I went right? to San Diego, though, I was like a I was like a San Diego too. I was like, <laughs> where are the ugly people? They have they right. have to be here. Like, yeah. uh, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Well, they've all been pushed out, and they're all in the hills, you know, fixing their guns. You know, and there is a strong. But what was what was good about that job at the time is that I mean, this I was there. When 9-11 happened, I remember there were all these arguments. It was the Arabs. It was the Muslims. It was this. But they were, even though we politically disagreed on a lot of things, um, they could be very kind. They were very kind and they were very generous. And we had a common ground. And I took this one great road trip from San Diego up to Reno, Nevada to go to the NRA conference the guy who could blindfolded manufacture a gun out of like five pieces. I mean, he knew everything about the history of firearms, how to make a firearm, how to fix a firearm. He was a, a weapons expert. And if you listen to his story as to why he was so into guns, it made sense. He was a smaller stature. He grew up in kind of rural California, and he had had a number of incidents in his life where he was going to be attacked or violated or robbed if he didn't have a gun. But the fact that he had a gun kept a group of bikers from beating him up one time. The fact that he had a gun kept some guy from, you know, forcing himself into a bathroom stall at a truck stop with him. And this guy, even though I would disagree with him about a lot of things, he had empathy and compassion for the people around him. You know, the the Mexicans who lived in the neighborhood where he was, he would fix their bicycles so they didn't have to go to the bike shop, which was 20 miles away. And if we went to a restaurant, he was always very careful to make sure that he left a nice tip and was respectful of people. But now, I mean, people don't rub shoulders the same way they used to with people who have a different viewpoint than they do. So I'm here in New York and other people who are in cities like that. And if you live in your social, I mean, when was the last time anyone took a good road trip across the country and had a cup of coffee at two o'clock in the morning in Nebraska shooting the shit with some truck driver 
and just talking. I mean, I haven't done that in a long time, but there was a period of time where I was constantly rubbing shoulders with other Americans and we would find a commonality and things to discuss or just to appreciate each other's company and share stories. Now I feel like if I went somewhere and I said that I was a lawyer in New York who wrote a book, I'd almost immediately be branded as the enemy. Now, I might be wrong about But the truth is, is that based on where I work now and what I do, I'm more likely to be taking a plane to Europe for four or five days to do something for work and then to go see a friend in southern France who I knew from New York than I am to get in a car and drive up to you know, North Dakota. And I, I think we're missing that, that kind of commonality. Um, and I think it's important that we have to get back to it somehow. I don't know how we do it. I don't know. I, that's why I like this idea of having almost like a national service requirement for teenagers between high school and college. But there has to be something where I can have a different point of view than you and you can have a different point of view than me. But I don't have to brand you the enemy. I mean, I have to. And I wasn't a big fan of Scalia. There's a lot of things about Scalia I didn't like. But the fact that he was always very conscious of the fact that your values and morals in New York or Washington are very different than the values and morals in Kansas. And if you go imposing on us what your perception is, it's going to I mean that that begins to tear at the fabric of federalism, not to be too legalist. And, and he also had really deep relationships with justices he disagreed with. Yeah. And they could sit down and they could have a glass of wine together and talk. Yeah. You know, but now and I might be wrong. I mean, how much of what I know is just what's fed to me by the media and what I pick up by watching MSNBC in the morning? I don't know. I mean, I. I'm sure I'd still be able to find some commonality with people around the country. That's one of the things I like about my job now is the maritime lawyers. Like I have to call people around the country, Houston, Savannah, Georgia, South Carolina all the time, ask them to go do something on a ship. But I can still have a conversation with them and be respectful. I don't have to get into the fact that I can't believe Texas just passed a law that doesn't permit, you know, doesn't protect transgender rights in bathrooms in North Carolina. Like, regardless of what our viewpoints are about some of these very discrete issues, we have to be able to function with each other. What's we have to be able to talk. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be able to talk to each other. What's interesting is I could see Stephen Harker sitting down and talking with a guy at a truck stop, but I couldn't tell you how Stephen Harker voted in the last election or if he voted at all. But I couldn't see Flieger sitting down and talking with the guy in the truck stop. I couldn't either. I couldn't either. Like I, because he treats people like objects, not subjects, in general. Yeah. Except, with the exception of Stephen. I mean, he they have a real friendship. He and Steven, I, although he, he can be uh, short and kind, a little manipulative, but he, he sees Steven as a subject, but most women he sees as objects and, right. pe and people as means to ends in general, as, as opposed to ends in themselves. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how we get back to this point where people kind of respectfully can communicate with each other. Um, Steven, I mean, there's still this America, there's still this idea of being, um, I mean, the one thing I like about Stephen is that he is he does still have this American story of I came from this place. I put myself through school. I worked hard. I moved to the city. I, f I did what I was supposed to do. I put in my time. I was industrious. I followed the rules and I, I played, you know, I played the game. I followed the rules. I did what was expected of me. But I think one of the themes of the book is even when you do that, shit still falls apart. And You can do what's expected of you, whether it's your family or whether it's society or whether what you think is going to be successful. But at the end of the day, it, it's you kind of you buy into this narrative. But what happens when the narrative either proves to be false or falls apart or just isn't as satisfying as you thought it was going to be? And I think that's also a thing that happens in New York a lot and in some of the big cities where people are like, okay, I'm, I'm moving from 
this small town here. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get a job in the city. And the next thing you know, you're, it's, it didn't solve anything. You're still who you were. The, the emptiness that was there is still there. And the disappointments are almost greater in that situation because you didn't think that you'd have any more disappointments. Yeah, it's you like thought you had paid yeah. off all the disappointments. You thought you had insulated yourself from the disappointments. It's like, it's just, the, the goalposts just always move, right? Like, well, if I just do this, and that's what's great about how you narrate the, the dissolution of Stephen's marriage. Like, they right. met the first few, go, few, like the first few goalposts like they could get to, and then right. they, it seems like they were crushed under the weight of how fast they moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and just, yeah. It just became disillusioned. Right. Right. Or, or, or just the things that you think are successful end up being, you know, I mean, how many brunches can you go to? Just I think in New York, people are like, oh, I'm going to brunch, going to brunch. I mean, is, that, is, that, is, that the, is that the end game? I don't know. I have a friend who's a rector at a Episcopal church in uh, New Union Station. It's Calvary St. George's, a pretty historic church. And somebody tweeted, he's a, a good buddy, it's somebody tweeted out a quote from his sermon a few weeks ago. Uh, this, this is who we are at Calvary St. George's. We get baptized, we die, and we go to brunch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so even if you go to church, you still go to brunch after. <laughs> right, right, right. You just get the less I'm, primo seating. I mean, I'm, I don't know how many people... I'm always impressed though when somebody who I think's political views are on the right of the spectrum, but they're also sometimes more likely to be the person that goes and volunteers at the soup kitchen on a Thursday afternoon. You know, somebody who might be vehemently opposed to what is considered to be the progressive agenda is maybe the person that takes that locks in a certain number of hours each week to go and volunteer. I mean, maybe they're not digging into the reasons of why there's poverty or the reasons why there's inequality, but they are, you know, they they make the effort to. And uh, whereas a lot of the progressives I know, they're not going to volunteer anywhere they're not teaching they're not mentoring have the guys at your firm and gals i mean the co-workers colleagues lawyers you're working with doing maritime have they read the book um no the lawyers i used to work with had just recently picked up a copy and they're curious to see who are the basis for some of the characters and i've told them that there's nobody there's not one person um I, i think artistically it's important early on to get a couple of people who believe in the project you're working on so there were early drafts of the book that I had given to some close friends, and they were the ones who told me, don't, don't stop, keep working on this. Um, but it's a real struggle for me personally as to how is this going to be perceived in this kind of professional world in which I work. Because I, I am still, I mean, I'm still a working attorney. I work uh, in-house for a company. It's a very specific legal community in New York and people who I know well and people who have been good to me. And now here... It's it's a funny thing to like, oh, by the way, here's a book I've been writing for seven years. And I wouldn't uh, necessarily say you're going to want to do maritime law after you read this book. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but the, the, but what's, what's interesting about it, though, is that that, I mean, the legally, like, you know, having these cases where you were um, litigating against people who were returning home from the war zones is very much by a, kind of a maritime law anomaly. It's just like it's like a, a wrinkle in time as to how that ended up being based on some history of acts of Congress. But, you know, law firms at the end of the day have to keep the lights on. That's the goal. You have to bring the work in. You have to keep the lights on and you have to keep people paid. And people have uh, upper middle class existences. They got to put their kids through college. 
And uh, maritime lawyers and some of the firms, they, you know, they would take the work that they could get. You know? But maritime law is a whole other, it's kind of, I guess it's probably going to be the next book. I think the next book is going to involve a lot more ships because there's always great stories that come out of it. You know, you got like a Russian captain who twice got so drunk in the airport that they won't let him on a plane and then they got to put him back on the ship and they drop him off in Casablanca and he still has to figure out a way to get home from Casablanca to, you know, Vladivostok. You know, there's all these types of I mean, maritime is a whole other thing because there's a whole infrastructure and there's a whole world of how commodities and goods are transported by sea and move on the sea that I think a lot of people in this country have no idea that these are kind of the underpinnings, the foundations of our modern existence. Is that part of what keeps you in the game? Because you seem like a pretty curious intellect. And is, is part of like maritime law that it it is the intricacies? I mean, it does seem like a... A, a subfield of the law that's complex. I think there's, I think there's the geography of it. I like the geography of it. I like the fact that you get on the phone and you can talk to Hong Kong in the morning before it's too late there, and then in the afternoon you know how many hours before you have to call somebody in London. You know what time the ship is going to arrive in the west coast of Africa. You know there's going to be a dispute with the customs authorities in West Africa. You got some guy in Connecticut calling you and saying, "What do I do? The Turkish ship owner doesn't want to pay my bills. The African." cargo receiver doesn't hasn't paid for the cargo i'm getting sued in singapore so there's a lot of it's kind of like globalization but it is it's globalization but kind of on a on a nuts and bolts basis um and i mean not to always just keep bringing it back to the book but i think that this is i think this is going to be one of the fundamental challenges you know for the people like you know like the thomases of the world and i probably like a lot of people who are trump supporters and i think this is playing out everywhere around the planet whether it's the people who voted for Brexit or the people who voted for Trump or the people who are leading these kind of nationalist movements is the world is becoming increasingly interlocked with respect to trade and commerce and law. And things are going to keep advancing and things are going to keep moving forward. And the oil is going to keep being pumped out of the ground and the cities are going to keep growing and people are going to have to keep providing and feeding the families. And they're going to want an upper middle class or middle class or an upper middle class lifestyle. And the world is going to keep going. The world's going to keep moving forward. There's too much commerce behind it. There's too much money behind it. And what happens when you have people out in West Virginia who barely have a high school education and think that they're going to open up the coal mines again and go back and make $22 an hour? All they want to know is that their black lung payments are going to be paid, you know, in the event that they contract black lung or that somebody in their family is going to continue to receive their health benefits for being coal miners. But that segment of the economy and where the country was and where it's going, and even globally, is, I mean, it has a half-life of maybe 20, 25 years. And as things become more interlocked and you have people on the coast, I mean, I, like I said before, not at the risk of sounding pretentious, but like I'm more likely to get on a plane to go to Denmark to go meet clients to talk to them about what Trump's trade policies are right now than to drive across the country and have a conversation in a truck stop with somebody. I mean, probably because I'm not going to see the Grateful Dead playing at Red Rocks like I did when I was in college. But, you know, people who are on the coast are going to be looking out they're looking out to the world. They're looking out. They're going to send their kids to good schools. They're going to want the kids to study abroad. They're more likely to have kids who have dual nationality, more likely to speak more than one language. And that that progress, if we call it progress, that's going to keep going. And the people who are in Thomas's position are going to keep falling farther and farther behind. Well, it's interesting, though. Stephen doesn't seem like a guy that looks out either very much. Like, he's not really – he's looking out to the next day. Yeah. Well, he's always looking for the next drink. Yeah, and the next kind of, I mean, he's trying to just get through the day, it seems. Yeah, but at the end of the day, at the end of the book, though, I mean, he's still, then he's, he's looking out, and he's always looking out his window. 
and he's always watching the ships. He knows there's something else out there and he's not accessing it. What he's doing right now isn't stimulating him because he wants to be out there. He wants to be out on the bow of the ship moving forward. He wants to be part of the progress. He wants to be part of the trade or what he perceives to be the progress or the part of the trade. And he's dealing with these very pedestrian matters. You know, he's dealing with a guy who has to feed his kid, came home from Afghanistan. And he's doing and he's working within a structure where his only responsibility is to refute those claims and to protect the client. And he's looking out the window. Yeah. And and, yeah, the other thing that strikes me about the book is there's lots of sex and very little love. Mm, I think that's New York. Yeah. I mean, you think that's, and do you think some of that's just like high, like, like high ambition people, you know, that, that are stressed, intense, then you throw right. Tinder in the mix, and all of a sudden right. you just kind of like that. Like uh, Flegel has a spreadsheet. He finally designs a spreadsheet for all, right, the, right, women, all the women he's sleeping mo- with, most of whom are younger. <laughs> right. I love and that one. Like to... she's not foreign; she's English. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think that what's ha- well. I mean, I I have heard people in New York in the past maligned as being serial monogamous, almost as if that was a pejorative term. He starts sleeping with somebody and the next thing you know, he wants to develop a relationship and basically, you know, he he has sex with somebody and within six months he's moving in and you have a joint account and you're moving into a bigger space. Um, that's almost looked down upon if I guess if you're not going to go the, the full way, you know, all the way. So people, they kind of meet, they couple, but uh, they sleep together, they go out to some dinners, and then the expectations quickly rise. And the moments the expectations rise, it's like, oh, everybody, it's like a hot potato. It's like, we're done, you know. Oh, and the moment that you see that somebody, you know, the moment you start to see an aspect of the other person that's complicated or difficult to deal with, or you don't see somebody on their best day, or somebody snaps, or somebody gets cranky or pouty or needy, you're just like, all right, I, I'm walking away. I'm done. Yeah, and in the book, I think serial monogamy is almost the conservative position. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> it's true, you know, like as opposed to just, you know, being. A I mean, even Kath, who's who's Stephen's love interest. I mean, you, you, who knows what she's up to with this crew of people she's hanging out with? Yeah, you know. And Stephen's walking around. But the moment that Stephen has expectations that she's going to come over for dinner, that he's going to engage in this quasi domestic moment with her, he's going to cook the filet mignon. He's going to grill the. You know, he's making the salad. He's salt and peppering the kale salad. He's playing Charles Mingus. He's opened up a bottle of wine. The moment he thinks he's going to engage on these things that we consider to be the pleasures of hearth and home, where's Kath? She doesn't show up. So he, with the moment that he has the expectations that he's going to have this moment of, of, uh, you know, of a consensual, just enjoying of the moment, she lets him down. So, and I think that happens a lot. I think people have high expectations of others of people they start sleeping with or people that they're a little bit intimate with, and they're just routinely let down. Hmm. But where do you see Stephen? So again, we mentioned for the book, it, it ends with with an, with an act again. I, I've described as radically decent. Like, what, where's Stephen in like ten years? Like, what's he doing? Is, is, do you think he's still at that firm? Do you think he's? Do, well, I think in ten years he's probably assisting refugees and working for the UNHCR and you know trying to. Put some bandaid on the bleeding wounds of the world. If he has enough guts to walk away from what he's doing, which I think he does at the end of the book, I think Stephen is is emblematic of um, of trying to be decent and empathetic in a world that doesn't always cherish that. But whether or not he's going to take the risks in order to go find that is going to be up to him. 
I, mean, I think trying to live by your morality and do what you want to do and, and live by your calling inherently takes a lot of risk. You're going to have to be willing to walk away from things. You're going to have to be willing to take a step back or just a complete break. And I think that Stephen, 10 years from at the end of the book, has hopefully taken those risks and taken those steps in order to find what he's supposed to be doing. But I mean, there's inherently a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk to be doing what you think you're supposed to be doing, um, especially when you have the trappings of modern existence, like rent and health insurance and maybe child payments or car payments. You know, are you willing to walk away from all that in order to find what, what it is that you need to be fulfilled? And I'm ho- I would hope that Stephen at that point had learned his lesson and said, look, I'm, I want to be out in the world and I'm not going to be held back by these trappings. I actually think that he doesn't have a choice at the end because everything's been burned down, so to speak. Is there stuff you want to walk away from and walk toward? No, now at 42, I think I've done my walking away from. I mean, I, it's the first time ever I've been comfortable and content in not content but um i don't have any itch to put on a backpack and disappear right now probably because i have a four-year four-and-a-half-year-old son who means the world to me and i've taken care of him this is another thing though i think having children i mean the more people put by not having children i think we sometimes deny ourselves our natural evolution as human beings in a way i mean a lot of people in new york are like children i i can't deal with having a child How, how would i possibly deal with having that child well, yeah, it's going to be a revol- It's going to be an in- internal revolution. It's going to change your life. But um, more times than not, I, I don't think it's for the negative. I think it's for the better. And then you can, when you sit down on a Sunday afternoon and you have some friends over and you have a barbecue and you have a couple beers and the kids are running around, you actually find contentment in those moments more so than you do, you know, kind of backpacking around Amsterdam on magic mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, there, it's a different level. Not that you shouldn't do that when you're in your 20s, but I think when you get to be you know, my age at 42, you know, you, it's a different vintage. You, you appreciate things differently. Edward, thanks for talking to me. It's a great book. All the beautiful people we once knew. I recommend everybody read it. And, and thanks. Well, I'm happy you like it. Well, yeah, it's, it's great. And, and thanks for your honesty, both in our conversation, but and also just in the thick description you give in the book. I mean, it's just great stuff. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And do check out all the beautiful people we once knew by Edward Carlson. It's a great read. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.